Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us again, and thanks for the very nice reviews and ratings you've been leaving for the podcast. By the way, if you can't rate or review us, tell a friend about it or two or three. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, too, at NextTrackCast. This is episode number 96 of The Next Track, and today we are pleased to have with us via Skype ethnomusicologist and shakuhachi player and teacher, Kiku Day. Kirk has been telling me about you and the shakuhachi, so it's a pleasure to finally meet you, Kiku, and thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. Great to meet you. Kiku, I've known you for a short time because some time ago I decided I wanted to learn how to play the shakuhachi. I think this goes back to the late 70s, the early 80s, when I used to walk around used record stores, and I was curious about some of the less well-known music that was available. And probably on a day that I bought something by Joy Division and The Cure, I picked up a used record of shakuhachi music. It might have been one of those Smithsonian recordings or UNESCO or something like that. And the sound of that instrument just overwhelmed me. I found that it was just beautiful. Now, this is nearly 40 years later, I must say. And for a while, I've been thinking, I'd love to learn that instrument. And how hard can it be? It's only got five holes, right? So I bought a shakuhachi a couple months ago, and I've been taking lessons with you for a while. And I thought it would be nice to have you on the show to introduce this interesting instrument to our listeners. Tell us about the shakuhachi. It's a very simple instrument, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. Yes. The shakuhachi, first of all, the word shakuhachi means 1.8, so it's just the length. As you said, it's got five holes, four in the front and one in the back. And it's made of bamboo? It's made of bamboo. It's got an oblique cut, which is basically the mouthpiece. So it doesn't have anything, you know, constructed inside. It's just this oblique thing that you kind of overblow over. Right, and I'll link to your website in the show notes so people can see photos of you holding a shakuhachi and blowing into it. Unlike a Western flute, you blow into it vertically. Yes, unlike uh, a Western, yeah, traverse flute, <laughs> definitely, yeah. Um, on a traverse flute, because you hold it sideways, you're just hold, using your thumbs, actually, to hold, and you've got all the other fingers to... to uh, to move and to cover holes and uh, so as a vertical flute you know you have to use fingers to hold it so it's kind of good that you don't have that many holes ah so you're saying it's a little more difficult to hold it in that vertical position you use at least more energy actually to you to hold it yeah right that's what i've found because i grip it as if my life depended on it <laughs> many people do. M maybe now is a good time to mention that there are two types of shakuhachi there is janashi and jiari can you explain the difference <laughs> Yes, um, and of course you asked that because you've been in contact with me before because, you know, for some people it's not so important and for, for some, like myself, it is quite important. Um, jinashi, it's a term that uh, probably only have existed in the 20th century because uh, the modern shakuhachi, uh, they are cut into and then maybe the length is adjusted and then more importantly, the bore is kind of rebuilt, you know, with uh, a kind of a paste that's made from urushi, which is a traditional Japanese lacquer and uh, kind of like something that's similar to polishing stone. 
and you made a out of, paste out of that and the maker can then manipulate the bore much more you know precisely you it's a little bit like the difference between uh, oil painting and watercolor painting you know oil painting you can paint it over and over again and you can change watercolor painting you have basically one go in that sense jinashi is just a bamboo and uh, you take away you of course manipulate the bore as well but you only take away material you don't add material to it and that was the 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 flutes of the Edo period. Edo period is the time when the Tokugawa uh, shogunate, you know, there was this feudal lord called Tokugawa in Japan. It's from 1603 to 1867. That was the Edo period, yeah, and it's in this period that the uh, shakuhachi became uh, used and. Uh, in this period, of course, it, it was just bamboo. And then later on, also in the Edo period, they started using urushi, so the traditional lacquer, to make it last longer, maybe. Um, and various other reasons, there could also be sound reasons for it. But uh, this adding of G is is very late uh, invention, you could say. I mentioned it because the first shakuhachi I bought on eBay is pretty bad and it's a jinashi, and it's relatively light. And the second one I bought, which is quite good, is a jiari, and it's very heavy. And that's one of the reasons I grip it as if my life depended on it, because it is so much heavier. I think the first one's about 170 grams, and the second one's about 450. So that makes a big difference when you're holding it and playing it for a long time. It does. It really does. And uh, I've had people coming to me and say, oh, do you have uh, any jinashi that... uh, Place like a GRE because I, you know, I can't, I can't hold it any longer. You know, if they have got problems with their arms or, and there's even an Australian maker uh, who have specialized in making uh, shakaja out of wood, and uh, one of his types is made out of a very light wood type, and uh, so that one is light too. <laughs> uh, besides the traditional bamboo, and you say they're made with other kinds of woods. What kind of woods are used? I imagine that it has to be somewhat dense. I suppose um, it would be better with some kind of dense wood because, I mean, even with the bamboo, you're talking about the density as well. And uh, often it is desired that it's denser, it's heavier and has, you know, um, you only harvest bamboo that's grown mostly in cold areas uh, so that they will be denser. And there's a slight difference in sound in these two types of instruments. And I guess the best way to explain it is similar to the difference in sound you get when you're playing a string instrument with steel strings versus gut strings. It's it's a very good um, analogy, actually, because you've got less sound with the gut strings and you might have different, or you at least have different overtones, you know, some different sounds, yeah. So you're half Japanese and half American. Yes, and you live in Denmark. Yes, I grew up in Denmark. <laughs> you grew up in Denmark. When did you start playing the shakuhachi? Uh, that's a long time ago. Uh, 1990? 89 or 90? Something like that. Okay. And uh, I was um, actually practicing for my entrance examination to the Royal Academy of Music on flute, Travis flute, when somebody came and said, oh, you have to listen to this. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's probably because I'm half Japanese and... 
And then I listened to it, and then it was like, oh, I better play. I'd rather play that and this, <laughs> you know. You had never really heard it before. I never heard it, no. Oh, that's interesting. So you just it, it was you just fell in love overnight with the instrument. Well, that's that right moment there, yeah. Yeah. And so you went to Japan and you studied with Okuda Atsuya, who is an, an extraordinary performer, but who himself has a non-standard way of getting into the instrument, doesn't he? Yes, indeed. Uh, I was very lucky to meet Okuda Atsuya and, uh, and you know, the, the fact that he took me in as a, a student. Um, Okuda himself started off uh, as a trumpeter, so as a jazz trumpeter, and he made a living as a jazz trumpeter, had his own band and played at, uh, I think, American uh, army bases, especially. <laughs> and um, when he was a, a university student, he heard the shakuhachi and fell in love with it and started exploring that at the same time as he had his trumpet career. And uh, he also went in, or he went in and, and started studying the older types of uh, pieces and also he started playing on Jinashi Shakuhachi. Can I tell my funny Shakuhachi story? When I was a kid, my father accumulated lots of instruments. Um, we had, of course, a piano and an organ and things like that, but he also used to like to collect penny whistles and wood flutes and things like that. They were all over the house. You couldn't swing a cat without hitting one. And we had figured out you know, we had these plastic fifes and recorders and wood flutes. And we said, oh, they all have this about the same number of holes and ocarinas. They all, we figured out how to play them. But he had this one thing. We could not figure out how to make it go. It had no hole to blow across. And when you blew into it, it just was just air going through it. And even if you made an embouchure, like play, tried to play it like a trumpet, it still didn't do anything. So Kirk is showing me his shakuhachi a couple of weeks ago. And later I began thinking, oh my goodness, we had a shakuhachi. We just, I always thought it was broken because the mouthpiece might have been missing or something. <laughs> or at worst, it was just a decorative thing. Somebody said, oh, here's a piece of bamboo. I'll drill some holes in it and it'll look like a decorative instrument. But it turns out it must have been a, a shakuhachi and we just could not figure out how to make it go. You missed your calling, Doug. I totally missed it. I just went in the totally other direction. I can play a plastic fife, but I cannot play a shakuhachi. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. I love that. So what is the origin of the shakuhachi music? Where did it begin? And why has there been this continual playing of these classical pieces that go back a very long period of time? That's a good question. It must be good music then. <laughs> um, well, for the... Let me start with the first part of the question. So the origin is um, the, the shakuhachi was imported uh, from China via Korea, as far as we, we know, with the Gagaku Ensemble. Gagaku Ensemble is the court music ensemble. And shakuhachi was part of that. That's the 8th century. And it was imported you know, with musicians, with costumes, maybe scores. There are scores left, not shakuhachi score, but koto scores. Uh, Etc. for inauguration of, a, of, the, of the great Buddha statue in Nara. So for some time it was a part of the Gagaku ensemble and then when they reorganized the Gagaku ensemble, Shabbat fell out of use. And in historical documents there's a few hundred years of, uh, you know, there's absolutely no, nothing written about it. Then it reappears again in 
in 12th century. And at that time, it's, it has changed shape from being made out of, of course, Chinese bamboo and six holes, and thereby playing a heptatonic scale, that means a seventh-note uh, scale. It had changed this uh, five-hole instrument. And of course, it had become localized or Japanized. So it's the most uh, common bamboo in, J- in Japan that was used for it the madake type of bamboo. And um, there's a lot of <laughs> different roads and, and scholars are not totally agreeing, but sooner or later it becomes kind of a, an instrument for Buddhist monks. First, just kind of holy men wandering around and begging while playing. Later on in, in the 17th century, they organized themselves into what's called the Fuke sect, which is a subsect of Rinzai Zen, uh, so Zen Buddhism. And those monks, they, uh, they played the music as their spiritual practice and uh, also when they went on pilgrimage and thereby um, played and made a living that way. And it's actually the pieces played by these monks during the Edo period, that is what we play today. Um, or at least what we play today has the origin from the Edo period. And But it's an oral tradition. So how they sounded back then is kind of hard Of course, to say. yeah. Yeah. And so this is what's called Hankyoku, is it correct? Hankyoku, yes. And what does that mean? Hankyoku, it, hon, the word hon can mean several things, like the origin or the, the real thing, kind of. Authentic music. Authentic, yeah. Or, or real opposed to fake or not good. or Yeah, so real origin, uh, the base. And uh, so the Fuke sect had the concept of these pieces being honkyoku. All other pieces of music or other music was called gaikyoku, which means outside pieces. But they could also call it rankyoku, which is more vulgar music. So does that mean there was secular sakuhachi music as well as sacred Buddhist sakuhachi music? Yes, you could say that. And uh, also the whole attitude about... Um, so instead of you know sitting and do med- meditation training, they would play music as uh, their meditation practice. So in that sense, sacred or at least spiritual practice you could say and the other question i have is this is interesting it's a it's a music used in meditation are there any other instruments i mean in western music for instance used for meditation that that's a very interesting concept i think in all kind all religions there's of course music but this kind of very specific aim of uh, doing spiritual training through sound. Through playing the music. Yeah. That's the difference. Here it's playing as opposed to hearing a choir, for example. But yeah, and, and it's not still not a meditation, you know, it's kind of... There are many reasons for why you use music in a religion, which could be to, you know, to give to God or to whatever you... <laughs> well, you know, in Western sacred music, you have this idea of making a joyful noise. And get people dancing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there are... In Baptist churches in the United States, they have dance music. They have, you know, real good rhythm and blues music. But the difference here is that 
is this connection to the breath in the music. So I'd like to bring up something really interesting that I discovered about the way shakuhachi music is scored, is that it's... What's the term in French Baroque? You have unmeasured preludes, for example. So you don't have measures. You don't have a time signature. And all of the music for shakuhachi is scored according to a breath. So you have one or two or three or four notes or whatever, and then you have a breath marker. So you play the music to fit your own breath. And for each person, this is different, but there's much more of a focus on breath than, say, if you were playing a traverse flute, where you have to figure out exactly the right place to gasp enough air to play the next couple of measures. Yes, and and also the fact that, uh, I mean, unless um, a break is written into the to Western score, for example, you, there's no break. But in, in the score of uh, Shakuhachi, which is mostly a memory aid, but still, it's kind of a score, you know, you are supposed to put in your breaks in between as much. And it's it's true that uh, the length, the only, the way I learned it, and this depends again on schools, because there are many, many different guilds in Shakuhachi. Um, the way I learned it, at least, the, the most important rhythm or pulse that exists in the music is your own breath, as you said. So the length of your breath, you're not trying to match the length of your teacher. Of course you are while you're learning. You're trying to, you know, imitate him. But you are just going, uh, supposed to be resting in your own, the way you breathe. Um, and that is the length of your phrases, basically. So so a novice could play a certain piece of music in five minutes, but someone with more experience and better breath control might play it in eight minutes. That's very possible, especially if it's kind of a very slow, long, stretch-out piece. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I found interesting in the scoring, you mentioned that the shakuhachi means 1.8, and this is the length of the instrument. This is the length of the basic instrument. Now, we're talking to you on Skype with video, and I can see leaning up against the wall behind you, you have about 30 shakuhachis ranging very small on this side to very, very tall on that side. And so the shakuhachis are measured, it's like a 1.3, a 1.5, a 2.2, etc., and that's the length of the instrument. But the score, any given score can be played on any instrument because the score is a sort of a tablature. It's just basically telling you which holes to play. The only difference is that the instrument is in a different key. Yes, absolutely. Japanese music, that I can say as an ethnomusicologist, is not very um, pitch-focused. Gagaku, you know, the imported music from China, is. And there's a very specific pitch to it, like right now in Western music. But, you know, it's not, we only have to go like 50 years back, then Western music wasn't sure about where are the pitches and where, where, where should you tune to. But in Japanese music, it's extraordinarily not uh, pitch specific. So the, the score, as you say, only shows the fingering. So you will play the same fingering whichever length of flute you play. So the pitch will change, but that doesn't matter. Is it always played as a solo instrument, or is it used in uh, in, in ensembles? Um, shakuhachi music has, of course, both aspects. The old monks' pieces, except for a very few pieces played in um, like duets or whatever you know, two persons playing it, it's usually just solo. But then when the Fouquet sect was abolished, as it was in um, 1871. 
of course, the, the good shakuhachi players went on and became musicians. And they entered, especially at a trio called Sankyoku. And uh, Sankyoku today is uh, Koto, you know, the 13 string zither, and Shamisen, which is a three string long neck lute, and then the shakuhachi. And so, so you've got these two, uh, this traditional ensemble. The thing I was concerned about is tuning, if they had to play with a group. But since you're playing with stringed instruments, I suppose that they just accommodated the shakuhachi player rather than because the shakuhachi player can't tune, right? I, I'm assuming it's not tunable. No, it's it's not tunable except for that you can do a lot with uh, the angle that you're playing at. You can tune quite a bit up and or down, but it's very unstable, let's say. However, uh, this is one of the big uh, issues after the abolishment of the Fouquet sect, because because they started playing in in ensembles. Obviously, the instrument needed to be in tune with the other instruments. So there were lots of creative creativity happening, and also, you know, the new uh, things happening, like uh, the one of the holes became a little bit smaller because it was. Basically, the shakuhachi was constructed with a, a formula. A mathematical formula. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was, um, the pitch wasn't right if you played with uh, string instruments. So they made one hole smaller and, and changed the placement of another hole. And, and also the fact that they started cutting it into, you know, attachable pieces. You know, you could then adjust the lengths and thereby, you know, the note of the lowest note. So, so what about when people play duets? They have to have two instruments that are in tune with each other. Yes, and and they can now because 1.8 is standardized so that the lowest note is, you know, the, the pitch of D, D above middle C. So, yes, and the modern instruments are well-tuned. Even the modern jinashi are pretty well tuned if you get a good instrument. So, yeah. So it's, you know, but the thing with shakuhachi is because the mouthpiece is so unstable, even though that your instrument is in tune, it's not always you play in tune. Right. Which is how I'm playing so far, not in tune. (laughs) We all start that way. (laughs) The music of the shakuhachi, generally what grabbed me initially was the sound of the instrument, but also the sort of the relaxing nature of the music. It, It is, as we've talked about it, it, goes along with the player's breath, and a lot of shakuhachi music does have these long notes. Virtuosity in the shakuhachi seems to be a lot different than what we consider virtuosity in the West. It's not, for instance, you know, Coltrane moving his fingers really fast on the sax. You don't really get that in the shakuhachi. What you get in the shakuhachi is people playing sounds differently. Can you try to explain this? Well, well, first of all, I would say that some pieces are quite virtuosic, you can get to to pieces where you really need to have technical skills, but no, it's not kind of the most important, you know, especially not the bebop kind of you know, technical skill and how fast you can be competition kind of thing. But um, the the shakuhachi has very different ways of looking at, you know, or the pieces are just constructed differently. First of all. Um, you've got all these different uh, angles of the head, 
as I know Kirk knows very much about. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Yeah, Doug, even if you were able to blow into that flute and make a sound, that that's only the beginning, because when you tilt the flute, you play either a bit sharp or a bit flat, and you actually need to do that for certain notes, because there's only five holes. So in order to play enough notes, you need to be able to alter the individual notes. Yes. And so you could think that you would always play the five notes that would play when you open holes one after another, but that's not true. Shagohachi um, music, the honkyoku, is actually not 100% pentatonic. My uh, PhD supervisor, he, called, he calls, sh- uh, not shagohachi, but the Japanese music for pentacentric. And I think that's a wonderful expression. So you've got these notes that are important, and so you will very often have five important notes, and that can vary though. But then you've got notes nearby that kind of gets gravitated to, towards the nuclear tones. So uh, uh, it's a very different way of uh, constructing pieces of, of music. Um, also, we think a lot in melodies, for example, and of course rhythm. But shakuhachi music is not only, the melody is not built up just with pitches. It's also built up with changing the timbre. You can sometimes have a phrase that's basically alternating between two pitches all the way through one long breath. But you may have uh, two, three, four different ways of playing these notes. And then I think the aim is actually really to enjoy how the tone colors change. So not that the melodies go da 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 or anything like that. Right. More, you know, how different they sound, the quality of it. And, and it's not about playing the da 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 as fast as you can necessarily. It, it's about giving it, it's about painting the music. It's about painting the sound. Mm. And, and you have some interesting types of ornamentation where you sort of nod your head to get vibrato. And sometimes you do a glissando by tilting the flute. It's really quite interesting. When you listen to it... Tilt the head. Tilt the head, yes. Tilt the head, yes. This, this is what... I, I tilt the flute, and that's the wrong way to do it. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting, because on the surface, we can hear what is essentially a calm music, but the more you start to understand the music, you can hear how much subtlety there is. And, and I would, again, liken this to Baroque music, where the first time you play through a melodic section, you play it sort of normally, and then the second time, you ornament it, and you're changing the rhythm, and you're adding trills and things like that. You, you have a great deal of flexibility, because the score itself isn't 100% frozen either, right? That's very true. I mean, you can compare with that. And the Shagaji score, again, depending on the guild, uh, at least it can be very very flexible does the score use any dynamic markings or is it just the notes and here's where to breathe there's the fingering says little indication of the lengths of uh, the notes you know but not not precisely something that you can calculate to it doesn't say which speed or anything like that it shows a little bit whether there's vibrato or certain ways if you blow in a windy way, for example, or like very breathy breath. Um, so that's basically what it shows. In the tablature, like one, uh, is the symbol uh, that shows the fingering, you would know whether it's played with your, you know, which head position you, you will play. 
So uh, there's a lot of lot in the score that you would not be able to read out of. So you will certainly need to uh, have a teacher who will explain what's actually happening in the notation. So it's not prescriptive, the notation. But also you can't really learn it from the score unless you're very, very good. There is this teacher-to-student transmission that's quite important. It's very important. You basically cannot uh, just uh, learn from the score. Of course, today there are people who are trying to do so, but that's because they also listen to uh, recordings and things like that. Right. But you may very well miss this with the tone color differences, unless you have so trained ears that you can hear that. Right. A lot of us would miss that. So in addition to playing the shakuhachi and teaching, you are the chairperson of the European Shakuhachi Society, and you are in the enviable position of organizing the World Shakuhachi Festival in London this year. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Can you tell us briefly about this? This is going to be a big shindig, apparently. Yes, uh, the World Shakuhachi Festival was something that was uh, started in 1994 by one of the 20th centuries greatest shakuhachi player, Yokoyama Katsuya. And he had this very open mind or international mind. Um, so he created this World Shakuhachi Festivals where he gathered performers from the different guilds, which is very, very difficult in Japan. Most uh, guilds stick to themselves. So they might have their own concert or festival or event or something like that, but they don't mix. It's softened up today, but still they stick pretty much to their own guilds. So these events are really kind of where all, all you can really listen to so many variations, so many approaches to the shakuhachi. And not only from Japan, but also, you know, shakuhachi players from all over the world you know, professionals from the U.S., so also England, also other parts of Europe and Australia. And um, what is special about this time in London is that there's this professional shakuhachi world uh, playing the traditional uh, shakuhachi that actually came out of this, uh, the, the monks playing, the fukesex playing, and then they became more, professionalized, they played ensemble pieces, and then, of course, they, they entered into the uh, University of Fine Arts, where they're trained really well and are fantastic players. Uh, they also uh, play, of course, contemporary music. Um, but this time we've got uh, also quite a few represented from people who play uh, styles that's kind of scattered around rural Japan um, where it's more like a continuation of uh, the Fuka sect and they're not like professional shakuhachi players, they didn't go to you know, University of Art or, or these kind of things they might have been you know, working in the post office but spending a lot of time with the shakuhachi nevertheless <laughs> and uh, and also we've we've got shakuhachi in folk music. Uh, after also the abolition of the uh, fuke sect, uh, shakuhachi also entered the folk music world. And the world of this kind of shakuhachi that comes directly out of the fuke sect and folk music, they're never mixed. So it's 
the first time that we've got folk music represented at the World Shakuhachi Festivals. We've got 100 and, you know, it's four days at Goldsmith, University of London, down in New Cross. And uh, we've got 120 workshops during these four days. Uh, we've got 16 public concerts. We start with the opening gala concert at Union Chapel. And that's on the 31st of July, where we try to uh, make a kind of a mixed program so the audience can really hear various types of styles, approaches to the shakuhachi. And then we every evening we'll have a big concert and we'll have lunchtime concerts as well. It's going to be hard on the lips. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> we also have uh, an academic uh, academic. Uh, Shakuhachi Symposium on 30th of July at SOAS, University of London. And this is, uh, we've, we've uh, made a call for papers um, and now scholars from all over the world are sending in abstracts for presenting papers on Shakuhachi. So they can come from all kinds of uh, fields as long as they want to you know, present papers on Shakuhachi. They're welcome. <laughs> we'll have a link in the show notes if you are near London. At a minimum, try to check out one of the concerts because I think it's going to be fascinating. Even if you don't know the instrument that well, it would be a rare occasion to hear some of these performers who, I guess, many of them never perform outside of Japan very much, do they? There will certainly be some people who either rarely or never performed outside of Japan. And um, yeah, the, at Goldsmiths, the, where the concerts and lunchtime concerts and evening concerts are, it's from the 1st to 4th of August. I look forward to it, and I hope that anyone who's interested checks it out. And we'll have a link in the show notes, and I'll put in the show notes links to some recordings that you can listen to on some of the streaming services. So if you don't know what this music is at all, you'll be able to check it out. Kiku Day, thanks very much for joining us. Indeed, thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Now comes the part of the show where we present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? So this week, I'll be listening to a new recording by Bill Frizzle and Thomas Morgan called Small Town on ECM Records. This came out a little less than a year ago, and... I've long been a fan of the music of Bill Frizzle. He's a guitarist, and he has a unique style, and he has this sort of chameleon aspect that he can play atonal jazz, and then he can shift to country and sort of rock out, rocky stuff, and then mellow music. And he's got this wide range of, of musical styles, yet he's recognizable because of his sound. And one reason I want to listen to this again is he's playing in a town about 45 minutes from me in May, and I grabbed tickets, and I've never seen him perform live, and I'm really looking forward to it. So this is a recording with guitar and bass. It's a very mellow, laid-back recording. Some of the tracks are 11, 12 minutes long. It's very fluid. The, these are all recorded live. They're improvisations, but a lot of them basically stick to the melodies of, of the original songs. The final track is Goldfinger, which is actually kind of funny, Frizzle did an album not long ago of songs from movie soundtracks. So if you like jazz guitar and particularly the mellow laid back jazz guitar, remember this is just guitar and bass. There's no drums to give it any rhythm. It's, it's relatively laid back. Check this album out, Small Town by Bill Frizzle and Thomas Morgan. Doug, what about you? Kirk recommended that record to me. I listened to it recently and it's quite good, like he says, so you should give it a try. 
Meanwhile, I will be listening to a guitar player of another sort altogether, and I'm pleased to say that John Prine is still with us. I heard him recently on a Tiny Desk concert on NPR, and it made me want to listen to more of his earlier stuff, so I've gone back to a best-of collection of 12 of his early songs called Prime Prine from 1976. First of all, if you don't know, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't already know, John Prine is an American folk singer, and I hesitate to call him that because his songs pack more than folkiness, although he does write and sing about folks, so maybe that's apt. I've always enjoyed John Prine because he is a master of irony, humorous irony, bittersweet irony, heartbreaking irony. The first song of his I ever heard was Dear Abby. It's a classic of his about writing to uh, the advice columnist. And then in college, we also liked uh, Illegal Smile, which was a song about casual, illicit drug use, which was something that the people in my dorm could relate to. And uh, I also used to get a lot of requests for John Prine when I was on the radio in the early days doing weekend overnight shifts because that's when you get the most thoughtful requests, right? Anyway, John Prine was very prolific in the early 70s, and I, I just couldn't afford to own all of his albums. So this Best of album, which takes uh, songs from his first four albums, served me very well for a long time. If you like people like Randy Newman or Phil Oakes or Towns Van Zant, good storytelling songs with a touch of O. Henry, then I, I think you'll like John Prine. So listen up, Buster, and listen up good. Prime Prine is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.